Hello and welcome back to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine. Each month in this podcast, I talk to the people involved in creating the RHS monthly magazine for members, and we explore the stories behind some of our features. Today, we're going to discuss a visit to a London rooftop garden that sits high above the rest, and we'll bring you an insight into the innovations that promise to really help reduce the environmental cost of horticulture, especially in growing media. But first, some may say that two's company, but three's a crowd. But for Mark Diacono, he'd argue it's a crumble. Yes, I'm sorry about the bad dad joke. My producer always makes me do these things and I can't say no to her. Anyway, in this issue, Mark continues his series championing growing for taste. And this month he takes on our spiky friend, the gooseberry. Mark, this is the second in an occasional series of articles you're doing for us, all about celebrating the taste of different fruit. As readers will expect from you by now, you give us loads of advice on the fruit's history and, of course, how to grow them. Plus, we have James Curtis, the head chef at our garden Hyde Hall in Essex, on how to cook and eat them. So this month, it's all about gooseberries. And I have to say, if they taste half as good as a photography, then there we are on to a winner. The most striking thing for me from the article is the range of colours, Mark, from yellows to greens, plum colours to almost translucent white. Have you found, is there any difference in the taste between the different coloured varieties? That's really interesting because I think they're they're a little bit like mulberries in that respect, in that the colour itself, it's not carrying anything particular that changes the fruit. So it's not the case that, you know, as with all our traffic lighting when it comes to fruit, that we think kind of purple and red are are riper and more lovely. Any of them can be as delicious as the other. So, you know, there are really, really good yellow-green ones like, you know, leader or something like that. Um, You know, proper white ones like Bright Venus, all the way through to much deeper coloured like uh, a Hinamaki red or something like that. But I I wonder if underneath it, you know, the redder ones we think taste better still because of, you know, how we're wired. But it doesn't necessarily reflect in the flavour. You can have equally delicious red or yellow ones. Well, as ever with these articles, and the thing that I find almost the most fascinating is the insight to the background and the history of the plant. And you did it when you wrote uh, about rhubarb for us in the March edition, and you've done it again here in Gooseberries. What did you uncover about the history of them that you might not have known before? Well, it, what, was, what was really fascinating, and I knew a little about this, but it was really the scope. Gooseberries came here, you know, maybe 500 years ago. So we've been growing them for a long time, but they were hugely popular. You know, the way we think of strawberries now and blueberries and all of the the sweeter fruit, they were wildly popular. You know how now we've got garden shows at different times of the year. There were ones just about the gooseberry, and especially sort of the Midlands up to north, up to the Lancashire and Cheshire around there. Certainly in the late 1700s, they were getting on for 200 gooseberry shows, um, which is really extraordinary and hundreds and hundreds of varieties were held there but not and this was a wonderful celebration of just a marvelous marvelous fruit but they're still happening and this is something that i really like there may not be hundreds you know there's a handful here and a few there but they're still happening i think they're mostly in cheshire a couple in lancashire and i hate to say it but i'm nerdy enough to want to go <laughs> i want to go to a show that's dedicated to one of my very favorite fruit And just the fact that they're being celebrated in that way, I think, is a really extraordinary thing. We um, covered a feature on it quite a few years ago, actually, about one of the gooseberry shows. And they are the most fascinating thing, because for us, as you say, culturally at the moment, you know, gooseberries aren't a hugely popular fruit. But actually, the range of colour, the range of sizes, there's a huge diversity in it. And the pride with which people show is equal to showing any dahlia or pumpkin or anything else that other people might be growing at the moment. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's such a great point, you know, and... 
it's interesting to pick apart the you know what it is that's led to the gooseberry perhaps being less popular than it used to be and i think it's Mm. mainly driven by two things i think one is that our diet has got sweeter and sweeter you know the the big decline has happened in the last 30 40 years which is really where sugar has come wildly into our diets and i think the second is the other thing that's happened in that period of time is that how we eat has been increasingly driven by the supermarket and gooseberries aren't a year-round thing you know we can get strawberries fairly year-round now either from overseas supply or by growing in polytunnels here and under heat and so on but the gooseberry is still wildly seasonal and that's you know it's part of how we live isn't it we we enjoy what rocks up in november what comes bursting out in March and showing us that, yes, there will be another year of loveliness ahead. You know, it's something that I think we're coming back to. We're celebrating the season or we're celebrating and enjoying things that just for their little window, you know, I don't want to eat asparagus in July and any time around again until at least April. And it's the same with gooseberries. It's one of those kind of markers of the year for me that makes me feel like I am in that time of year. And it's like the, you know, like the the temperature of the sun you know you know it's july or november you know they're, they're very different and I, it feels like that you know I, I i you know and i feel like many of us gardeners have that in us but if we can enjoy that with the flavor as well um i think that's all to the good and tell us what's your best tip for growing gooseberries is it as bushes or cordons or standards is there anything you can give us advice on Number one is to be thinking about airflow. So however, you know, if you want to have a bush, if you want to do it as a cordon, that's really fine. But airflow is the main thing. So I like growing them as standards, you know, on a a short stem because they do look great. But they're also that gets the, the whole leafy fruiting area of the plant up away from the soil into a little bit of the breeze. And like a vineyard, you know, your absolute one for disease avoidance is good airflow. And that's your number one fungicide is a good breeze. So that's something I, I, I really would suggest. And they look fantastic. And I, I think that's a really, really important part of things is to make your garden look great. So, look, Mark, we talked about taste. Are there any other tips you can give us maybe about preserving gooseberries? There are quite a few avenues you can go down with gooseberries on the preserving front. And as a seasonal fruit you often find that you're into a, a bit of a glut and you can pick an early lot which will be sharper and you can pick a later lot which usually are sweeter. You can make brilliant, wonderful jams. Ice creams are really good but what I would say with gooseberries and other sour fruit, if you're making anything that's being frozen, the act of freezing tends to kind of take the edge off any flavour that's there. So make them really gooseberry-ish, really overdo it and it will come out being just as you like. I tried something a really interesting and brilliant way of playing with gooseberries. I only tried it a few months ago. So I took a jar of gooseberries, in went five percent of salt and you let them sit for two or three days and they create their own brine and then you dry them either in the oven on the lowest possible heat or um, on a dehydrator if you've got one and you get this lovely salty, sweet, sour kind of boom, you know, and they're just astonishing. They'll keep forever. Pickling is really good, and um, James gave us a really nice recipe um, for the piece. You know, with it's the classic kind of pickling mix of some sweetness in the sugar, some sourness in white wine vinegar that will also do the preserving, along with really your favourite kind of aromatics. And I think his are, if I remember rightly, fennel and juniper seeds and peppercorns. There was something else, uh, mustard seeds. Really, really good, again, with fish, really good with any of the kind of fattier meats, you know, like duck and that kind of thing. Quick salsas made for kind of spring into summer. They're just 
wonderful and you can preserve them in stock syrups and all sorts and you'll be unsurprised to hear this chris um if you if you want to you can put them into a big jar with lots of vodka and a teeny bit of sugar i'm salivating as you speak which is probably not the best thing for a podcast but um i think you've given us millions of ideas there so um thank you mark look it's always great to talk to you and thank you for enthusing us so much about a, a fruit that maybe not enough of us are growing but also the way that we should be considering to cook and eat them so mark jack and i thank you very much for your time Thank you very much, Chris. It's been a lot of fun. You can read Mark's piece on this wonderfully versatile fruit in this month's The Garden magazine. If you're an RHS member, you'll be getting this magazine dropping through your letterbox any day soon. And if you're not a member, then why not? Please join all the details and the benefits, such as priority booking or some discounted entry to our shows and gardens, can be found on the website, rhs.org.uk. Right now, the teams are at the height of the frenzied preparations for this year's RHS Summer Flower Shows. It's a wonderfully energetic and, at times, I have to say, hectic period in our calendar, but also for the designers, nursery people and the organisers who are dashing around the country, desperate and keen to make some beautiful, calm oases of floral perfection for everyone to enjoy. I've just returned from Cardiff and from Malvern, Chelsea's in a week or so, and then we've got Chatsworth, Hampton Court Palace and Tatton Park. Plus, of course, the, the shows and the events held at our four RHS gardens. In fact, next week's RHS gardening podcast will be recorded entirely at the Chelsea Flower Show to give listeners a glimpse behind the scenes and what's happening at this year's show. The podcast will be available to listen from the 23rd of May. There are still tickets available for most of the shows, so why not come along and enjoy a great day out? And if you haven't done so already, book your places online now and share the fun. For all the details on all the shows, visit rhs.org.uk. Back at the office, I'm currently making the final amendments and signing off the proof pages for the upcoming June issue. And I really do hope, as ever, as I say each month, that there's really something for everybody in it. But there's a couple of highlights I just wanted to draw everyone's attention to. One is, if anybody visited or saw photos from our shows last year, there was a real standout plant, and it's got to be lupins. And this month, Sarah Raven has explained in great detail all about the history of lupins and how they've been bred and developed over the years. And also there's a beautiful photograph from our photographer, Tim Sandal, who's done our photographic plate where he's compared lots of different lupins side by side. They're so beautiful, they're so sumptuous, and they've even made the cover. Another article is by James Alexander Sinclair, and you may have heard him on our other podcast where he's been hosting question and answers from our flower shows. And James is also a council member and a garden designer in his own right. And he's been looking through an occasional series about the link between the RHS and plants, people, and in this month about the planet, and the way that the RHS and our members and our actions can really help improve uh, and really work with the environment. It's a really interesting piece because he brings to the fore some of the activities of the RHS that I as a staff member might know about but maybe our public or our members don't know so it's a really good article for sharing some of the environmental awareness and benefits that the RHS is trying to help people with. 
Now, everyone loves a hoster, surely. And this month, we've got a six-pager all about people's recommendations of hostas. So over six pages, we've got six experts, gardeners, nurserymen, nurserywomen, talking about hostas and which are the best to grow. And so we've gone from the really small blue mouse ears to the massive Empress Wu, who's got leaves almost 50 centimetres wide. Phil Clayton, our deputy editor, coordinated, and he spoke to these six different people to really get the very best of their advice. And it's a great piece, beautifully illustrated and really is a shortcut to selecting the best hostas for your garden. And so there's some of the bigger features and then we also have a couple of smaller features which actually are just as important. One is our essay and um, every few months we have a written piece no images just a strength of writing about one topic and this month we look at the use of language i'm slightly obsessed about language and do we actually have enough words in english to describe gardens do we know how to describe their emotion or their feeling and um, a poet called um, sarah salway has written this essay just challenging us to maybe read a bit more poetry think about poetry when we're describing gardens it's a really good thoughtful piece and certainly as an editor makes me really question the the words I use and other words I should be using. And there's also a really useful, practical article all about growing fruit in containers. And this was done with our colleagues down in uh, RHS Garden, Wisley in Surrey. And it's just some top tips on how to get the very best from fruit that you grow in containers, maybe on your patio or on your balcony. One of the real standout articles this month has been a visit to a lofty rooftop garden with an amazing view over the capital. Its designer is Emily Earlham. That was a really lovely project. We started it quite a long time ago, actually before the whole building in King's Cross was complete. And it was really exciting because the building was going up and at the same time we were working out how we were going to arrange the roof terrace. And our challenge was quite unique and that was to make the space feel smaller because there's an enormous roof terrace. It's as big as the apartment inside. And Actually, one of the issues of roof terrace living is you don't get that lovely feeling of enclosure that you do when you're down in a garden. You feel very exposed. So our first job was to break down the space into smaller spaces, which became comfortable and usable. What we've done is we've installed a very high proportion of planting. Usually you find with roof terraces, people put some planting around the edge or stick to some pots. And what we did is we intersected the space with planters that were made off-site. The linear panels of steel made this shape that surrounds the whole perimeter of the roof terrace and then cuts into it to make different rooms that you can go into. And the other thing we decided to do was to make the planters on different levels. So you didn't feel like you were sitting in a box. Actually, the planting, because you have a planter behind that's higher than another planter, which is in front, you can have a cascade of plants coming down, a bit like you would perhaps if you had a border on the ground. One of the most important things is what's possible on your roof terrace. So there's key things to consider. And the first one, of course, is how strong your roof is. And if you're in a new build property, that could be quite easy to find out because you can go to the building contractors um, or you might be given that information when you buy the property. Otherwise, you have to get a structural engineer to help you with that information because you have to remember that everything you put on the roof has a weight and that's called the dead load. And on top of the dead load, you have to consider the live load, which is people walking around and how many people are going to be on it. So that's the first tricky thing to work out. And once you've done that, 
You just need to think about the logistics of getting things up and down from the roof. Other than that, you can let your imagination run wild as long as you stick to the kind of plants that will be happy in that landscape. And often what you're subjected to is a lot of wind and a lot of exposure to the sun. So we will be mainly looking at a dry palette, a Mediterranean palette. And what's fantastic about those kind of plants is they have lovely shapes and long flowering seasons, and often they're evergreen. I think one type of plant that's having a huge revival is pines. So there's lots of different kinds of pines, and some of the more dwarf pines are really useful. There's lovely pines that drape down, and there's some that will make sculptural forms. And people often like Pinus mugo or Pinus waterii, and they're quite easy to find now in our garden centres. Obviously, in the first couple of years, you really need to be careful of, of plants settling in, and so they will need water. And one the most favourable information at the moment for watering is better to water less often but well. So, for example, in the first year, in the hot months, you might actually water three times a week. But then in the second year, you would try and water twice a week. And what you want to do is get to a point where you're not using too much water for the plants and they're starting to survive on their own. I think one of the things to remember is the wind tolerance of plants. As a rule, anything with big, wide leaves won't like the wind. So if you're selecting plants that have got thin leaves and needles, they'll be much more tolerant to the wind. You can almost see which plants will survive once you start looking at them in that way. So you can consider rosemary and lavender and santalina. And all these plants aren't going to get their leaves battered by the wind. And their leaves are the main way of taking in their nutrients and their energy. So that's why it's really key. One final tip, and that is edging plants. So, of course, in borders, you need border edging. Well, in pots, you need edging more than anything because your pots are higher up than when we're on the ground. So they can, they're very visible to the eye. And I often use little plants like erigeron and uh, napita and things that will fall down slightly over the edge of the pots to soften those edges. And I think that makes all the difference. And finally, gardening and the environment. Whether you're an RHS member or just a keen gardener, whether you live in the UK or somewhere else on the globe, it's really important that we really tread more softly and more lightly on the environment. And this really does unite so many people. And one of the main areas of focus that a lot of us are looking at is really that of growing media, really the technical name for bagged compost. And uh, there's a lot of growing media that has got peat still in it. And there are government targets which were introduced a few years ago to phase peat out of growing media for home gardeners by 2020 and for commercial gardeners by 2030. So these are some big targets and the industry isn't quite keeping up at the moment. I spoke to one of the leaders in growing media manufacture, Melcourt Industries, who've been making peat-free compost for many years. Catherine Dawson is their technical director. Melcourt um, was formed by a forester, a chap who used to be a forester, and all of our raw materials are based on 
forest byproducts, the things that the sawmill don't use, which is the bark and some of the wood fibres. So in the early days, the company was producing mulches and soil improvers, and we've gradually refined and refined over the years. We do still supply mulches and soil improvers, tree and shrub planting media, all for the landscape industry. But increasingly, we started supplying the professional grower market because bark was emerging as a very useful alternative to peat. And indeed, in the early days, it was a really good ameliorant for peat. Peat and bark work very well together. Then when the market was turning towards peat reduction and peat-free products, we developed a full range of professional peat-free growing media for professional growers. The first of those were sold in about the year 2000. They were under the name of Silvermix. Some of those growers were also selling, as many do, retail nurseries, selling, growing their own plants and selling them to their own customers. And uh, some of their customers were saying, look, we want to use what you use. We want to be peak free. We can't find what we want in the garden centres. Can you sell me some of that professional product, which they were doing? And that feedback encouraged us to think, well, maybe there could be a place for us in garden centres. So, When we made that decision, we decided not to compromise in any way on quality. So what goes in our retail pack, the Silver Grow range, is actually exactly the same as the basic recipes that our professional growers are using. We saw no reason to compromise. We knew that those formulas worked and worked well. And we also knew that they were versatile enough for gardeners to use them. Um, they're not difficult to use. I mean, mm. they flow easily. They they grow easily. They're easily fed. They're easily watered. All of these are things that matter to gardeners. So that's what we did. And we've gradually refined and developed the range. And we feel that the policy of professional quality has really paid off. And the reason why we're talking about this is because of the news piece we've got in the June issue, which is really focusing on about will the UK industry be meeting its peat-free targets. And this was set out in the government's Natural Environment White Paper in 2011 and then restated in the Environment Plan last year, which was to stop peat being used within growing media. So could you just explain the difference between the 2020 and the 2030 targets? Yes, the 2020 target refers to retail use by gardeners, sales in garden centres, of growing media. The government's aim is for those to be totally peat-free by 2020, which, as we know, is next year. That's very, very unlikely to happen. For professional use, the growing media that growers use um, in their pots, that target is to be peat-free by the year 2030. So, so we've got these two targets, and they're sort of voluntary targets, aren't they? They're an aspiration of what the government wanted rather than being a particular stipulation. Yes, there's no ban in the offing. It's very much um, voluntary at the moment. But in the 25-year environment plan in which these targets are enshrined, DEFRA did refer to further measures that they would consider should the industry not be seen to be moving quickly enough towards the target. And indeed, DEFRA is in a process of consultation at the moment about further measures, because I think they are disappointed by any standards. The rate of move to peat-free is happening very, very slowly. Okay, so we've got this issue, which you've you really beautifully explained, which is the, the, the government desire and intention for the industry to respond in a certain way. But you're saying that considering 2020 is next year, whether we believe it or not, um, that actually home gardeners will not be 100% peat-free next year in the products that they're going to be using. No, they won't. Peat-free is currently about less than 5% of the total. Now, that that is peat-free. One thing that has happened is, and many 
of the, the listeners will be aware it's very difficult to buy a 100% peat product now. So although the peat-free market is small by any standards, it's a small chunk of the total, the quantity of non-peat materials in the growing media that gardeners are using has increased rapidly. So whereas products, say, 10 years ago, a lot of retail products were 100% peat, very few of them now are. They're all diluted with alternatives such as uh, wood fibre, bark, coir, and even a small amount of green compost. And do you think that's likely to change? Do you think there will be more consistency? A bit like we've got the traffic light system on our food products for fats and salts and sugars. Do you think that the industry is really going to take the lead on this or wait uh, for the um, government to actually start um, using more of a stick mechanism rather than encouraging them to do it voluntarily? So the industry in its widest sense, um, including the conservation movement, um, the RHS, the Horticultural Trades Association, the big retailers and the growing media manufacturers, we've all been working towards creating a scheme called the Responsible Sourcing of Growing Media Scheme that looks to delve much more deeply into the environmental and social impacts of of all growing media ingredients. So not just peat. So we're looking to actually find out the impacts of all materials. We don't want to go from the frying pan into the fire and find that we all start using something else that appears to be much better than peat or just isn't peat, but carries its own environmental baggage that's damaging. So it's a very good scheme. It's fairly complicated. It's not easy. But um, all sorts of environmental impacts, such as the amount of energy that it requires to make or move or transport a material, how much water is required in its manufacture, what are the habitat and biodiversity impacts, is it renewable? So all of these things are looking to actually make it easier for the consumer to know the impacts of the material they're buying. Now, it's a little way off being available to the consumer. In the first instance, it's being directed at the big buyers. So say the likes of Homebase and B&Q, for instance, as just two examples of large movers, of large sellers of big volumes of growing media. We're looking to influence them, and they have been involved in the creation of this scheme, to say, look, you will be buying on price, but also you need to be looking at the environmental impacts of the materials that are going into growing media. I think it's a really good move, and it's all heading to making things more transparent for the consumer. So, Catherine, as we look at the targets for 2020 and 2030 and your really useful summary of where the industry is at, how do you feel things are progressing? Will we be meeting, we're not going to meet the 2020 target, but you think we'll meet the 2030 target? What's your prediction over the next few years? I really hope that we will be able to meet the 2030 target. We're too close to 2020 for that target to possibly have be achievable. It has to be said that one of the challenges is the sheer volumes that are involved of the alternatives and their availability. In our world of forest residues, we know that we're finding more and more suitable materials all of the time. And uh, we as a company in this sector have been growing rapidly so not so rapidly that we'll be able to take on the entire market in, of course, for 2020, nothing like. But there's work going on all over the place looking at new sources of materials. So I'm hopeful. And I think there is no doubt that the government is very, very set on reducing peat use in horticulture. The case against peat started as a biodiversity and habitat loss issue. But now it's very much about the importance of peatlands in carbon capture and carbon storage. 
And this is global, it's not just the UK. And that's the thing that's driving the interest of the government, as well as the very important role that peatlands play in, in flood protection. So it's a much wider issue than it was when it started out in, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So there is a great encouragement coming from the government. And I think we'll see that innovation will help us. So no, we won't make the 2020 target. We may not even make the 2030 one, but I think we'll move much more quickly in the next few years than we have in the last 10. Catherine Dawson, thank you very much for your time. Well, that's all we've got time for in today's edition of The Garden Podcast. You'll be able to read all of the articles discussed in the podcast in the June issue of The Garden magazine. We'll be back next month with more audio treats. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and the podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.